How's everybody doing? All right. Michael and Ashley are here for those that flew in just to hear this message. <laughs> All the way from St. Louis. All right. So today we continue our study through uh, the second epistle, Peter's second epistle. Second Peter, if you have a Bible, turn with me to chapter 3, final chapter in this uh, letter, which is very different from chapter 2. How many were here for chapter 2? We, we went through it. Chapter 2 was Peter's, I'm calling it his inspired word flogging of the arrogant, ignorant, deceptive, defective, greedy, blasphemous, adulterous, authority-hating, false teachers. That's all in there. If you read chapter 2, these men with their destructive heresies, their, their inflammatory words were seeking to entice those with unsteady souls. New converts, people struggling with their faith. They, they promised them freedom, but instead delivered slavery to sin, including and especially the sin of sexual immorality. That's sort of highlighted in chapter 2. Peter lets them have it with uh, both barrels. He proclaims the sure destruction that awaits them and their followers, specifically those who deny the master, Jesus Christ, who bought them. Those who turn from the holy commandment and return to the defilements of the world, they will be worse off than if they'd never known the way of righteousness, Peter says. They are accursed children, and they will be judged. They will be destroyed. They will experience the gloom of utter darkness. And Peter warns us to recognize and to not be enticed by false teachers, to stay true to the what he calls the holy commandment, the gospel, the sound teachings of the apostles, to continue living in obedience to Christ, to continue making every effort to nourish your faith with the things he pointed out in chapter 1 of virtue and knowledge and godliness and steadfastness and brotherly affection and love, so that, again, as we saw in chapter 1, our call and election will be confirmed. We can be sure of our faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 was a warning against the negative influence of these evil false teachers. Now in chapter 3, Peter returns in part uh, to the positive message he gave in chapter 1. He reiterates the fact that God has given his people precious and very great promises. And that through trusting in these promises, we are empowered to overcome temptation and remain in the way of righteousness, living for Christ. This is seen most clearly in verses 13 and 14, which we'll look at next week. But let me just uh, jump ahead to those, and let me read those. Peter writes, but according to his promise... Based on God's precious and very great promises, we are waiting, we're expecting, this is a waiting in expectation, in trust, for, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Notice the connection between waiting for, trusting in, expecting the future promise of a new heaven and earth 
in which righteousness dwells, so uh, a new kingdom of righteousness under Christ, and the connection with that to being diligent now to live righteously, to live without spot or blemish. What Peter is saying is that knowing, believing, trusting in God's promise of a new world of righteousness, that's coming, that's in our future for sure, ought to give us confidence and power now to live righteously in this world. So as we saw in chapter 1, it's through the knowledge of God, uh, the knowledge of His promises that we're empowered to live for Him, to live righteously in this life. And therefore, if we begin to question His promises, if we're no longer waiting for, if we're no longer trusting in, if we no longer have any expectation of their future fulfillment, the impact on our behavior, how we live, will be great. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 2. Those who turn from the holy commandment, they stop trusting in the promises of God, then return to their former earthly defilements. Put simply, when we trust the promises of God, by His power, we will live godly lives. And when we reject the promises of God, by our own power, we'll fall back into sin. And at the top of the list of promises uh, to trust in is the promised return of Jesus Christ. This is like the, the Christ's returns is like the, the gateway into the the new life, the, the, the things that he wrote about, the new heavens and the new earth that we'll see in verse, that we saw in verses 13 and 14. So the return of Christ is like the crucial event. When Christ returns, two major things will take place. First, he'll rescue those who trust in him. Those who are waiting expectantly for his promised return. The author of Hebrews writes, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So first, Christ will return, not to die on the cross for our sins, as He did in His first coming, but to rescue those who trust in Him, to rescue us from the darkness of this world. And then second, when Christ returns, He'll bring judgment on this dark world. In Thessalonians, we read, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So when Christ returns, he'll divide humanity into two camps. We don't have time to read uh, Matthew chapter 25, but there Jesus calls these two camps uh, sheep and goats. Camp one, the sheep, will be those who are eagerly waiting for Christ's return, those who trust in Him and His promises, those who demonstrate their trust by living in obedience to Him. They'll be rescued from this world of darkness and sin. And camp two, the goats, will be those who do not know God or trust in His promises, those who deny the Master who bought them and do not obey the gospel. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. 
Therefore, when we look at what will take place when Christ returns, the promise is meant to give hope, to give hope to those who are trusting in, waiting for, patiently waiting for uh, His coming, obeying Him in this life, and to bring fear, even terror, and conviction to those who are not. So we can understand why one of the top destructive heresies of these false teachers would be a denial of Christ's return. If Christ's promised return is not going to take place, will not take place, if it will not usher in a new heavens and a new earth, a judgment for the, uh, uh, rescuing the sheep, judging the goats, then there will be no judgment for your for their sin, for sinful lives. And so Peter continues his letter by reminding his readers of the promised return of Jesus Christ and by defending the truth of Christ's return against the heresies of these false teachers. And he begins by saying, remember what Scripture teaches. You know, when you're uh, struck with some kind of, oh, that's sort of new, I never heard that before, you need to go to the Scripture and see, does it line up with that? It's it's possible you can hear new things that are in Scripture, but you need to find them. The person teaching them needs to show you them in Scripture, or you need to find them in Scripture. Whereas the false teachers of chapter 2 uh, focus on cleverly devised myths, Peter and all the apostles focus on the Word of God. We saw this in chapter 1, in verses 16 through 19. Peter first addressed the denial of Christ's return. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter had made known to them. He, I mean, this is a topic that Peter preached on, the, the return of Christ. Christ is coming. He's coming in power. He's coming to establish his kingdom. He's coming to divide the sheep and the goats. He had, and he had presented evidence for Christ's coming. Remember in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1, he recalls his eyewitness account of Christ's majesty at the transfiguration. So he saw Christ in his glorified, majestic body, if you will. The body he'll return to same, same, in the same way in the second coming. There Peter saw the transformed, glorious body of Christ, which confirmed the prophetic word of Christ's return in glory. As he wrote in verse 19 of chapter 1, and we have the prophetic word of context of Christ's return more fully confirmed by our eyewitness account of seeing the transfiguration to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Again, the promise of Christ's return found in Scripture in Peter's case, the Old Testament prophecy is what he's referring to. And confirmed by Peter's eyewitness account, this promised return of Christ is crucial for the believer. We are to pay attention to it as we would pay attention to a, a lamp shining in a dark place. So, so it's like uh, pay, it's a darkness in this room and all of a sudden there's a light shining. You know, that's where you're focusing on, the light the promise of Christ's return gives us hope in this dark world. It's meant to sustain us until the end. 
Until the day dawns and the morning star, which is Christ, rises in our hearts. Until Christ comes and rescues us and transforms our hearts completely. Until we receive our new body in Christ. Until we are uh, completely set free from our flesh. So again in chapter 1, Peter, through Scripture, defended the reality and importance of Christ's return. And he does this, he says, in verse 13 of chapter 1, to stir you up by way of reminder. Remember, Peter is near death. This is probably his final letter to the churches, and he knows that. The Lord has revealed that to him, chapter 1 says. And he wants to stir them. He wants to stir us up by way of reminder. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he reminds his readers of this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. So now we're finally to our text. Verse 1, chapter 3. Beloved, in both of them, both letters, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. These are Peter's first words after his verbal flogging of the false teachers. So, uh, you know, we had a a week gap, and then I had an introduction, but they're just reading along. They just got that slam after slam after slam against these false teachers, and they're going, whoa, chapter 2 was very harsh. But notice Peter wants to move away from the harshness and condemnation of what is false and move back to stirring up by way of reminder what is true. And one of the ways he changes the tone is by calling his readers beloved. He says, I am no longer speaking to the accursed children of chapter 2, but to the beloved, the dear ones, the ones worthy of love, the true saints, the children of God. Back to chapter 1, he addresses them as the elect exiles. I love you guys. And so I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And what what does he want to remind them and us of? Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Basically, remember what the prophets taught and what Jesus commanded through the apostles. Remember the Old Testament. Remember the New Testament. Specifically, remember what they teach in this context that Peter's addressing about the promised return of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, which was written prior to Christ's first coming, we often find prophecy that includes aspects. In fact, most of the time we find prophecy that includes aspects of both comings. Let me give an example. Isaiah chapter 42, we read, verse 1, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The first part of the prophecy was fulfilled during Jesus' first coming, when God put his spirit upon Jesus at his baptism. Read Matthew chapter 3, where that took place. But the end of this prophecy, he will bring forth justice to the nations, will take place at his second coming when he comes to judge between the righteous and the unrighteous, when he divides the sheep and the goats, when he sets up the new heavens and the new earth. Then in verse 2, Isaiah declares, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
We're not going to go into all of that, but the point is that's talking about his death on the cross. That's his first coming. And then Isaiah says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he establishes justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Again, this clearly speaks of a time when Christ returns to establish justice on the earth. That didn't happen at his first coming, but it will when he comes again. So, so many Old Testament prophets uh, speak of both comings. Then when we get to the New Testament, after Christ's first coming, we have very clear commandment from the Lord Jesus recorded by the apostles. For example, I mean, this is just, there's lots of them. I'm just going to give one example. Matthew 24, 44, Jesus commands, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus is saying, excuse me, Peter is saying, remember and be stirred up by Scripture. Remember that the Old Testament prophets and Christ himself, through the apostles, confirmed the reality of his glorious return. Jesus is coming back. Be stirred up. Have hope. Don't live for the things of this dark world, but the things of the world to come that Jesus will establish when he returns, the permanent, eternal kingdom of the Lord. That's at the heart of Peter's message here. But as we saw in chapter 2, there's a problem. In contrast to what the prophets were saying, what Jesus said, what the apostles were teaching, there are and will continue to be false teachers who oppose them. There are those who deny Christ's return and the judgment he will bring. So beginning in verse 3, Peter has another reminder. He says, remember that scoffers will come. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I don't get confused with the phrase, in the last days. In the New Testament, this refers to the days between Christ's first and second coming. Yes, we are living in the last days, but so was Peter. And in his day and ours, there are scoffers or mockers or false teachers who, as we saw clearly in chapter 2, follow their own sinful desires. That's kind of a theme of these guys. They're just out to, to, to justify, to teach things that enable them to continue to live in their sin. They take the truth of Scripture and twist it to their own destructive heresies, which include a denial of Christ's return, a denial of the judgment they'll face for their sinful desires and actions. Their denial is seen in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Their denial is based on the assertion that all things are continuing as they were since creation. The laws of nature are constant and unchanging. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. The seasons follow one after another. The tides rise, the tides fall for thousands of years in perfect order. Nothing has really changed. Therefore, we can expect nothing to change. Any thought that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is ridiculous. That would be too dramatic. 
That would not, things don't change like that. Therefore, they can continue in their sin. They need not worry about judgment. This denial is so similar to what we see in our world today. In Peter's day, it was a denial of Christ's return, therefore a denial of the judgment of God. And in our day, it's a denial either of God's holy nature or God's existence that leads to a denial of his judgment. I don't believe in God, or I don't believe a God of love would send people to hell. Therefore, I don't believe in judgment. There's no judgment. I don't have to worry about how I live. If we deny God's existence or his holy nature or his just nature, then we can uh, deny his judgment on our sin. And therefore, we can continue to live like there's no tomorrow, to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. No fear of consequences. We can, as the scoffers of Peter's day were, follow our own sinful desires. Again, in our day, this often takes uh, the form of agnosticism or atheism. The eminent New York University philosopher Thomas Nagel, in his book, uh, ironically titled The Last Word, wrote this, I want atheism to be true, and I'm, and I'm uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I don't believe... It isn't just that I don't believe in God, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want a universe to be like that. Nagel is, uh, he's at least honest about his reason for rejecting God. He prefers to live and think as he pleases, to do what he wants instead of what God wants. And the same was true for the scoffers of Peter's day. They denied Christ's return because they wanted to follow their own sinful desires. And I must ask, is there anything about God that you're denying so you can continue to follow your own sinful desires? The fact that you're here probably means that you're not denying God's existence, but are you denying God's holiness? Are you denying His justice? Are you denying His hatred of your sin? Are you thinking, as you willingly give in to temptation, oh, no worries. God is love. He'll forgive me. Are you like the scoffers denying his return? Or at least that he could return at any moment? I've got time. I can live like I want for a while, and then when it gets closer, when I see more signs... I can repent, I can give my life fully to Jesus and be saved. If this is your thinking, then it's clear that you don't really know the God of the Bible at all. You might as well be an atheist. For those who truly know him, love him, and desire to obey him. As Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's not saying those, it's, a, it's a sign of, of uh, who loves him, whoever keeps his commandments. It's saying uh, what follows from loving him is obedience to him. You want to obey him. If you truly know and love the Lord, then by his power, you're a new creature in Christ. And even though you're not perfect, we're not perfect, 
your desires, our desires will be to keep his commandments, to obey him in all things. That's in, in, in a, way, a way you can tell, am I a new creature in Christ? Well, if, if, if your sin causes you angst and a desire to go to the Lord and confess, that's a sign that you're a new creature in Christ. Because in the past, it would just, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. You desire to obey him in all things. You will be one of the blessed who Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. So ask yourself, is there anything about God that you're denying specifically so you might continue in your sin? Now back to 2 Peter. We've seen that scoffers will come saying things like, uh, it's been a while and nothing has changed. Where is this coming? Why the delay? And so in verses 5 through 9, Peter responds with a defense of the Lord's second coming. Peter first addresses this false idea that all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He does this by drawing attention to the Lord's past activity. The scoffers are saying nothing has changed, nothing will change. Christ will not return and therefore judgment will not come. But Peter counters, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, deluged with water and perished. Did you see the emphasis in Peter's opening phrase? They deliberately overlook. Peter accuses these scoffers of intentionally, intentionally blinding themselves to the activity of God in the past. They don't learn from history. They don't want to learn from history. And then he points to God's activity in the past, specifically, as he did in chapter 1, to the great flood at the time of Noah. This, he says, is the proof that this world, which was created by the power of God's Word, was deluged, flooded, judged in a massive way by the authority of that same Word. But the scoffers would have everyone forget this. They intentionally ignore the facts of God's Word, which records not, not clever myths, but both past history and God's sovereignty over all things. In the past, God created the world, and God judged the world. It's His world. He's sovereign over every event. Therefore, He controls when Christ returns. And he's also in control of the judgment that will take place when Christ returns. Verse 7, but by the same word, the word that in the past created the heavens and the earth, the word that caused the flood, by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Look, you scoffers. Don't say nothing ever changes. Don't say God will not judge. God in the past, because of his holiness and justice in wrath, destroyed the world with water. And in the future, the same God will in wrath destroy this world and, uh, and the ungodly with fire. As the old gospel song says, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, but the fire next time. Peter is saying, don't scoff. There's fire being stored up for the ungodly on the day of judgment. 
As we saw in chapter 2, Peter doesn't pull punches. He was a hard-hitting, straight-talking man who knows what's in store for this world when Christ returns. I think he would have appreciated the lyrics of one of Johnny Cash's most powerful songs, titled, uh, The Man Comes Around, which alludes to the second coming. The first two verses go like this. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated the same. There will be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the tear of each sip and each step. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground? Stop scoffing, for the Son of Man will come around, and when he does, judgment will fall upon the ungodly. So we've seen Peter's response to the scoffer's assertion that nothing has or will change. Based on the Lord's past activity, you cannot say that nothing ever changes. Therefore, you can't say that Christ will not return and judgment will not come. Peter then, in both, his, in both verses 8 and 9, answers the question of where is the promise of his coming? Or, or why the delay? Okay, so he promised to come. Why hasn't, why hasn't it happened yet? And the first thing he points to is the Lord's perspective of time. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now this passage, uh, both verses 8 and 9, we're going to take a little time on because uh, they're sort of these verses that we often stand alone. We, you've heard this verse probably and it's just, you don't hear the whole book, you just hear this verse. This passage has been used to support ideas that in some scripture where a day is mentioned, it can be used as referring to a, a literal thousand years or, or, a, or a really long time. You might hear this with regards to certain prophetic interpretations. Or it's been used by people who do not believe in a literal seven-day creation. They say, well, to the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So, so we can't take the seven-day creation literally. Or six-day creation and the resting seventh day. However, that's not what this verse is saying. I'm not even commenting on the creation or not. I'm just saying you can't use that verse, this verse for that. It doesn't fit the context of this text. Peter's point is not a, a scientific one, a one-to-one -one relationship between a day and a thousand years. He's not giving a, a key formula to interpreting Scripture. He's asserting that God's perspective on time is just very different than our perspective on time. The scoffers are saying, where is the promise coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter is saying, it may seem like that. It's been a long time for you, but for God's, it, from God's eternal perspective, it's really nothing. And we should note that Peter's writing about 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. So apparently there were those who, who after waiting 30 years for Christ's return, felt that was too long. For them, and sometimes for us, close to 2,000 years later, our perspective says that it's been a very, very long time. So long, in fact, that we find ourselves tempted to doubt that Jesus will ever return at all. 
And I think one of the problems, little hobby horse of mine, is the people that keep saying, it's, it's going to be here, it's going to be now, it's going to be then, and, and it doesn't, so we're, they get us all worked up about it. That's okay, that's my granddaughter, she can make all the noise she wants. Peter's argument is to show the contrast between our temporal existence and God's eternal nature. In essence, he reminds us that our perspective on time is just very different from God's. We can understand this, I think, on a smaller scale. Have you ever had to sit through an extremely long and boring sermon? Maybe today qualifies, I don't know. Time just seems seems to stand still, right? especially as lunch approaches. Or again, to quote Johnny Cash, I'm stuck in Folsom prison and time keeps dragging on. What about a long car ride? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Time just keeps dragging on. There are definitely times when time seems to slow down. But there are other times when we're doing something we enjoy like listening to a great sermon, maybe today, okay, no, just kidding, or spending time with our grandchildren, or whatever it is you love to do, when time seems to speed up. We even use the expression, time flies when you're having fun. We know what this is like. So even for us, from our perspective as humans, we can experience time differently. And Peter wants us to see uh, time from God's perspective. And this becomes even more clear when when we see where Peter gets this argument from. He borrowed it from Moses, the the great prophet. Psalm 90 opens with these words, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The psalm begins by contrasting our temporal existence with God's eternal nature. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I mean, you have to think about it from a God that's existed from everlasting to everlasting. has to have a little bit of a different perspective on time than us who live for, I don't want to say, you know, who's the oldest here? A hundred years, maybe, if we're lucky. Then to illustrate the difference between God's perspective on time and our own, Moses says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Peter draws upon Moses' words, and he uses them to address what might seem to us like a delayed return of Christ. He reminds us that God has a different and eternal perspective. What we hold to be a long time, 2,000 years in our case, is for God a mere watch in the night. We're like the man stuck in Folsom prison. We're like the, the kid on the long car ride. But God is not. He's completely free, and time is just flying by. Therefore, whenever we begin to doubt the Lord's return, remember that God's perspective on time is different from ours. The scoffers would have us think that Christ is never coming back, that the world will never end, that judgment will never come. 
But Peter is intent on reminding us that Christ will return and judgment will come. So when you're tempted to deny some aspect of who God is and to doubt whether you uh, will, will one day stand before him in judgment, remember what Peter has said. Understand the Lord's past activity and his perspective on time. And then finally, Peter adds, the Lord's patience with his people. Again, the scoffers are saying, what's the deal with the promise? Why so slow? Why hasn't Christ returned? Nothing has changed, so so we can continue in our sin. And Peter responds in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't Christ come? According to Peter, it's because uh, He doesn't want us to perish. He wants us to reach repentance. Simply put, God's apparent slowness, His patience, is for our salvation. It's for our good. The Lord is waiting patiently to return to the earth to bring salvation and judgment. And when will He return? What will trigger this return? Well, the question is, when Peter says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, who are the all? What's He waiting for? Does he mean all people throughout all time? We're going to get into the weeds a little bit here, so hold on. Well, some would say yes. They believe in universalism. Have you heard of that? The Lord desires all to come to repentance. Therefore, eventually, in some way, all people will not perish, but will come to repentance and be saved. I don't know if these people ever read 2 Peter chapter 2, which makes it clear that is not the case, or most of, if not all of the rest of Scripture. Uh, And yet there are those who hold this view, that that all will be saved. This view is is not really found in evangelical, Bible-believing sort of Christianity. However, there are others, many Bible-believing evangelicals, who would also say the all refers to all people throughout history. But they would add... Because God has given humans freedom or free will, not everyone will choose to repent, and therefore even though God does not does wish, excuse me, does not wish any to perish, many, if not most, will. If you look at history and statistics and people. And in this view, God desi- God's desires, his sovereignty at least in this area, is subordinate to human free will. Or you could say that God's not wishing or wanting, desiring any to perish, is subject to His wanting to preserve human freedom, which is necessary for genuine repentance. Does that make sense? Okay. So the human freedom is sort of the the thing that, that overshadows this. And Uh, they would believe that human freedom is necessary to experience genuine repentance. And therefore, God must allow that some, again, history shows many, choose to reject His offer of salvation. And in this case, since God knows the future, He's patiently waiting for everyone who will choose to repent and be saved. And when they do so, then Christ will return. So the triggering event is when that last person who God knows will come to him, comes to him. 
And again, this view is held by many good, solid, Bible-believing Christians, including some solid evangelical leaders and teachers, including some of us here at Bridges. Maybe this is your view, or has always been this. This is sort of the default view, I would say, of this passage. And this view does not take away from Peter's point that the apparent delay of Christ's return magnifies God's patience and mercy as he waits for the repentance of those who will choose him. However, there's another interpretation of these verses that I, in humility, believe is more likely. And you don't have to agree with me. But you do have to listen. Oh, you actually don't. There's the door. Just kidding. That is, the all refers not to all humans throughout history, but only to the elect, God's chosen people. In this view, God's desires, His sovereignty is above human freedom, human free will. God will have exactly what God desires. And I hold this for at least two reasons. First, the context of the letter and the verse itself Peter is writing to the church, to Christians who are being attacked. They're under, uh, uh, some are being led away or being tempted by these false teachers. He wants them to understand that the delay of Christ's return and divine judgment is a sign of God's patience and mercy towards them, particularly those, the, uh, particularly toward the believers in their midst who have been confused and misled by the false teachers, those unsteady souls that may have been enticed a little bit. Therefore, the repentance in view for the sake of uh, which God delays judgment is that of God's people rather than the world at large. And we see that in the verse itself. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some counsel us slowness, but is patient toward you. The you here is the second person singular and is definitely his readers, Christians, the church, or as he calls them in 1 Peter, elect exiles. Peter's not saying that God is patient towards all people, but to his people. And then the rest of the verse should be understood in light of this. Same sentence, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. So first, it seems to me that the context of the letter and the verse itself points to the fact that the all are all of God's people. This, therefore, means that God's desires, His sovereignty, is not subject to human free will, to the extent we actually have free will. God is sovereign and does not allow, excuse me, and will not allow any of His elect exiles to perish. All will come to repentance. And the second reason I believe that all refers to God's chosen people is because of what is clearly taught. This is, if this is all you had, you know, maybe you could go either way, but what I think is clearly taught in other scripture. First, scripture teaches that God is sovereign over the will of man. To, what, to whatever extent we have free will, God is sovereign over that. Even in their salvation, this is seen clearly. If you were with us when we studied Romans chapter 9, it's worth a read, just read the whole chapter. But in verse 18, just to summarize, we find, so then he, God, has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus, speaking to a group of Jews in the temple, makes it pretty clear. But you do not believe because 
You choose not to believe. That's not what it says. You are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The emphasis here is clearly on the sovereignty of God and the salvation of his sheep, his elect. Therefore, based on my understanding of the context and in seeking the harmony with other scripture, seeking the harmony with the sovereignty of God, the all refers to God's chosen people. Okay, so that's the weeds there. Now, in giving you the different interpretations of the verses, I've probably raised more questions than I've answered. And if we had more time, we could talk about it more. But again, whether the all refers to all people or to all of God's chosen people, the point is the same. We should see, we should see the delay of Christ's coming as an act of mercy and patience until all sheep are gathered into the fold and not one is lost. So God is at work. God will make sure all who choose him or all whom he chooses, your choice will not be lost. None will be lost. Now the irony here, the tragic irony, is that these false teachers were taking God's patience which is giving them an opportunity to repent. Even a false teacher could repent. And they're turning it against God as evidence that Christ is not coming. And this will be another reason why they will receive God's wrath on Judgment Day. When God asked the false teachers of Peter's day and ours, why did you take my gift of time for for repenting and use it as an argument for unbelief, they'll have no answer. And they and those who follow them, those who deny Christ's return, those who deny God's existence, those who deny the holy nature of the Lord, will be severely punished. However, that does not have to be me or you. The Lord in His mercy, through the Apostle Peter, has given us the reminder and defense of Christ's return. And so no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how, how the darkness of this world is closing in on you, you have the truth, the lamp of Christ's return to shine into the darkness and give you hope. Let us not lose heart. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Christ is coming. The delay is meant to lead to repentance, not to unbelief. And from God's perspective, the time has been very short. And so it could be, I mean, I never hear this. If a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years a day, well, it could be tomorrow, which is for God a thousand, it could be a thousand years from now. But we still have to hold on to the truth of Christ's coming. Let me close by reading what Jesus said to his disciples to prepare them for his departure the first time and uh, to encourage them that of his return. Let me encourage you with these words. John chapter 14, Jesus says, let your hearts not be troubled. Be not troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. One day we will be with Christ. 
for all eternity. Let those words comfort you. Let those words motivate you in this life. My eternity is going to be with Christ. Maybe I should start living like Christ would have me live today. I think that's Peter's message here. Allow the words of Christ and the promise of His coming to fill your hearts and minds with hope and to cause you to renew your commitment to live this very short life from God's perspective to live it for Him and not following your own sinful desires. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Peter's uh, straightforwardness. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for each one here that we would, we would uh, take that promise of Your return, that we would take it in. We would mull it over. We would meditate on it. We would allow it to impact our lives We would think about what it's going to mean when we face you, when you return. We'll think about what it means at judgment. Will we be a sheep? Will we be a goat? Father, help us to begin to live this life in light of eternity, in light of Christ coming back. In his name we pray, amen. All right, if you would stand again to finish off the service. Before we begin, um,